From Romans 1, 19-20, That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And then from St. Uh, Thomas, uh, ST1, Q39A8, a response, Our intellect, which from creatures is led by the hand into knowledge of God, must consider God insofar as it usurps from creatures. Well, welcome back to Truths from the Text. My name is Aaron Ventura. I am joined by my co-host, Ryan Hurd. This is episode three, and we are uh, continuing a discussion about the relationship between uh, theology and Bible reading, how one uh, impacts the other. And by way of review, uh, last time, Ryan gave us the very helpful distinction in theology between dogmatics and systematics. So before I give the review answer, think about, do you remember that distinction between what is dogmatics versus what is systematics? Well, we said that uh, dogmatics focuses on demonstrating that something is true, while systematics focuses on increasing our understanding of those truths. So dogmatics kind of targets our will so that we hold the true or the right part of a contradiction, and systematics targets our intellect, our understanding to help us uh, grasp and understand those truths that we hold. Uh, now, uh, Ryan, any, uh, how did I do on that? Is there anything you want to add before we proceed into this content, dogmatics, systematics? No, I think that was really great. Um, you mentioned one thing we didn't focus on last time was the place of the will, uh, particularly in the dogmatic task of getting us to hold certain truths. Um, that is indeed what we're trying to do when we're proceeding in supernatural theology under authority of God speaking the Holy Scripture. Um, we can also, though, address our intellect to do the same to, for the same end. So there, there are things that target the will. There are things that target the intellect with respect to getting us to hold truths. Um, it's helpful, though, to underline the fact that we are making appeals to our will, not in some kind of irrationalist or mindless uh, you know, game that just force, force feeds people, um, but to underwrite the fact that we are trying to operate underneath divine testimony. And so, yeah, you brought that out, I thought, very admirably. And uh, yeah, your definitions of dogmatics and systematics were uh, better than I could say. Okay. Well, <clears throat> today we're going to talk about divine names. What is a divine name? And here's the way I'll try to set this up. So if I go to my shelf behind me and pull off a systematic theology book that's written within the last, say, 100 years, I'm going to have an introduction, a preface, you know, maybe a prolegomena section explaining what they're going to do, defining stuff. And then the first real chunk, uh, the first uh, big unit in most of these systematic theologies is going to be something titled like uh, essence and attributes or uh, divine attributes or something of talking about God in himself. And yet, if I go farther back uh, in terms of church history in my shelf and I look at some of the earlier stuff that is written, I'm well, for one, I'm probably not going to find as orderly um, always of uh, treated topics. But um, 
a really important book in my own life was a book called Divine Names by a, a pseudo, but you know Dionysius the Areopagite, and there's a long you know debate over you know who who actually wrote this. But this this book, The Divine Names, I remember reading it, and it kind of um, it kind of blew my mind the first time I read it, <laughs> and it was unlike anything else I had ever read before. And then as I started taking your classes more and seeing that um, this was one of the most influential theologians really in like kind of the history of the church. And yet um, I had actually never even heard of him or been exposed to him for you know much of my Christian life. Uh, so we're going to be talking about what a divine name is. Can you tell us a little bit about how much or not that's related to Dionysius's book uh, or Dionysius or Dennis. Um, how much of what a divine name is, is connected to that work or is it something that is um, uh, in existence in the way theology is done prior to him? Yeah. So the difference between divine attributes versus divine names um, is not only a terminological difference, like we're just speaking about the same thing, just using different words. Um, it is representing a very strongly different way of thinking about theology and doing theology. And even conceiving what theology is, what the task of theology is uh, as a whole. And broadly speaking, I find that most folks who start to enter into more formal uh, academic theology, professional theology, scholastic theology, whatever we want to call it, uh, start to run up against uh, that difference between divine attribute, which most of us grow up thinking our native thought life is occupied with speaking of divine attributes. It's how we approach uh, these kinds of topics. Um, most people really struggle to get over the initial conceptual overhaul that you have to undergo in order to start doing theology more precisely and doing so in terms of divine names. In some regards, there's a lot of overlap, but divine names are specifically what we would call in English today, predicates. Names uh, is simply the English word predicates. Uh, and then they're called divine because the subject to which these predicates are being either affirmed or denied is God. So divine name uh, is a predicate, which is either affirmed or negated of God, and therefore it's called divine. Um, as far as where this comes from, well, it is the way that church fathers are doing theology. Um, it's the way that even before Christ, theologians are doing theology, someone like Philo, uh, the Jewish, the Jewish uh, theologian, um, was important influence here among among many others. Uh, it's a more philosophical, you might say, way of doing theology, and the uh, heritage of speaking in English of divine names is coming from the Latin nomina, names or nomen, and that's a specifically uh, a reference to, uh, broadly speaking, Aristotle in his logic texts uh, who would call a predicate a name, uh, a, a term, logos in Greek, these types of things. That's what is meant. So in the technicality of theology, that's where 
that's what we mean. Um, even though that's kind of obscure uh, when, when you think of it and you call it divine names, it feels very ethereal to people. It simply means predicates uh, is what it, what name means here. So most people, when they hear that word predicate, maybe they have nightmares of, you know, English grammar class or something, or even just the distinction between a subject and an object. If you've been out of school for a while, you might even uh, have forgotten some of these basic grammatical terms. And when we're doing theology, these are things that you kind of have to, it's like when you learn a language, I remember learning Hebrew and realizing that my English was not very good. My English grammar was uh, insufficient because what the heck is a genitive, you know? <laughs> so uh, sometimes it's helpful when you learn another language, you start to have to relearn your own language. And we're kind of learning a new language when we do theology, is there's a jargon, there are terms, and we have to make sure that we're uh, making the switch in our mind from how we are, you know, normally talking and thinking all the time, and then kind of shift gear and say, "All right, I'm doing theology, and now I need to think in terms of predicates and subject." Could you give us an example of just what is a predicate? Maybe just a, a few examples so we can furnish our mind with this idea of predicate, subject, predicate, subject. Yeah, so your mention of, of basics of grammar um, is apt because Aristotelian logic specifically um, has its roots in basics of grammar, which are a reflection, the way we speak, the way we write in terms of grammar, is a reflection or an extension of the way we think, broadly speaking. Um, they're, of course, not identical, but it's an extension. And so... Broadly, what people would think of in terms of a grammatical predicate is more or less, uh, at least for rough, rough work, what is meant by a logical predicate, which is what we mean by predicate here, specifically logical predicate. So maybe that induces more nightmares, even worse nightmares of math class and a logic class. Um, but that is at least what we're gesturing to. Um, although it sounds foreign and scary and technical, and it is to some degree, nonetheless, it's it's fairly close to home. So think of simply the judgment or the proposition, the dog is brown. Uh, here, this is not merely uh, an English sentence where we can look at the grammatical subject, uh, the verb, of course, here being the is, and then the grammatical predicate, brown. But we might say I'm, I'm making an assertion or I'm knowing a truth in my judgment, my assertion, my intellectual act of judgment, that the dog is brown. That's what we're talking about. And here, brown is the predicate, a dog is a subject, and I am affirming, it's the conventional sign is, brownness of dog. Um, many other examples could be given. The classic philosophical example is Socrates is wise. Uh, wise is a predicate and is being affirmed uh, or composed to Socrates, who is the subject. And when the intellect conjoins, that's what we mean by affirm, conjoins this predicate to this subject, um, the real wisdom in Socrates that's found there conjoined to Socrates uh, resonates with our intellectual act of conjoining or combining predicate to subject 
and makes that intellectual act of judgment to be true. And in fact, at least according to St. Thomas, that is exactly where truth primarily is located. Truth for Thomas and for the classical tradition, starting with Aristotle, is a condition of the mind or the intellect, and specifically a condition or an aspect of the mind's activity of composing a predicate to a subject, saying Socrates is wise, or dividing, splitting off, or negating is the technical term, a predicate from subject saying, such as saying, the apple is not green, rather it's red, so that is not. Um, and either time we make those activities of affirmation or negation, there's the potential for truth to be found in our intellect, at, insofar as our intellect bears to reality and reality resonates with our minds uh, or not. So if you've ever gotten into an argument with someone over whether it's uh, something really silly or, or um, something theological, often there's this good instinct at the very beginning to just say, let's define our terms. I think that's how a lot of people, um, I think of like a John Piper, who's, <clears throat> he's, he's wanting to always be really clear with what his definition is before he goes in. Um, can mm. you explain how that is similar or dissimilar to this idea of doing theology in terms of divine predicates? Yeah, so... It is the mark of wisdom to be very slow in making truth claims with respect to affirmations or negations, uh, to be very slow about doing so or, or evaluating others who are doing so, unless you apprehend exactly what they're either putting into the subject or pulling away from the subject, namely the predicate content. In the case of God, we are always taking up predicates from among creatures and evaluating whether we can put them into God, make an affirmation, or pull them away from God or make a negation and have truth in either act. It's essential, first of all, to determine exactly what our predicate content is. So when we say God is wise, this is not merely uh, an English grammatical sentence or something I, you know, I've just recited with my tongue, nor is it a thought so much, uh, merely, nor is it the imagination that what we mean by the word wise is found in God, but rather we're making a predication and we're taking the thing, wisdom, real wisdom that's found out there in the world where Socrates is wise, uh, the apostles were wise, all of us insofar as we are, are wise. We're taking that reality there and we're saying this itself is found in God. So you might think of this in terms of the creaturely order, not only furnishing us with our divine names, the predicates that we can 
affirm or deny of God. But also the created or being the control of our names. Because at the end of the day, it's not whether we're saying the word wise or various other synonyms like smart or you know what have you. That's of concern. But it's the things themselves out there in the world. And insofar as they're similar to God, we say God has them. Insofar as they're dissimilar, we say he does not. So that would be one one arena where determining the predicate line is very important and in, in how we do so from creatures. Yeah, so this goes back to the opening kind of quote that I read. So the Romans passage tells us that, um, you know, God is invisible, but there are certain things about him that we can learn based on creation. And then I'll read again this quote from Thomas, our intellect, which from creatures is led by the hand into knowledge of God, must consider God insofar as it usurps from creatures. So could you give us kind of an exposition of that sentence? What is usurp? What does it mean to be led by the hand into knowledge of God? How does that relate here? Yeah, so I like to use the word usurp. Um, Thomas will also use that because it um, really tickles my tickles my fancy and it makes me imagine um, taking something that's found in creatures, wrenching it from them, and putting it into God or pulling it away from God. Once again, in these acts of judgment, which is really what we're doing in theology. That's all that we're doing in theology. When we say that God is not a body. We're taking what it is to be a body from creatures and we're asking, well, can we affirm or must we negate this of God? It happens that we negate. And so we say God is not a body and we've usurped that predicate and we've divided it and had truth. Similarly for affirmations, except the other way around. So Thomas will use the word usurp. I will also use that to stress the fact that our knowledge of God comes from creatures, just like Paul says, the invisible things of God come from the things or are known by us from the things that are visible. We look out into the world and because all creatures somewhat reflect their creator, they furnish us with uh, knowledge potential knowledge potential in these two ways of affirmation or negation. Thomas speaks of this as being handheld or having the intellect or our minds be led by the hand into God. And he uses that metaphor of being held by the hand because very literally our minds are using our senses and our physical touch and apprehension and engagement with the physical world, the material world, uh, to be brought into knowing God. Here in this life, Paul says we know in part and we know in a mirror. And this is what he's talking about, this process of being brought into knowledge of God from a state of not knowing God by way of the intellect feeling about the created order for things that it can affirm and things that it can deny of God, giving it truths, 
that are the medium, so to speak, wherein God is known here in this life before we see him face to face in the next. So that would be a little bit of an exposition of what Thomas means here. It's a very classic uh, instinct of Thomas, but it's also basic to Christian theology all throughout. It's just kind of the native way that theologians tend to think throughout the tradition. It starts to become not so native in recent centuries. And, you know, it's always a bit strange for uh, folks who aren't studying theology all the time uh, initially, but it is the traditional position and it's rather basic uh, in, in what it's, what it's asking and, and what its features are. This reminds me a little bit of, that whole purpose of systematics to give some understanding. And you can think of what, what the creed or various catechisms say about God or predicate of God. So I'll give one classic example is Westminster Shorter Catechism question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, those are a bunch of, well, they could be a bunch of predicates. We want to treat them as predicates, but mm. anyone, so my, you know, three-year-old son, he, you know, he, mem he is, has that memorized and he helps me memorize. Uh, so he's yeah. got that memorized. However, the mental content of my three-year-old, when he predicates spirit infinite that that line of words when he says that i think everybody kind of knows it's probably a little bit different than maybe what his dad is thinking or meaning or intending by it mm. and then you could just ask the question well what is the difference because they're saying the same thing they're making the same mm. confession about god the same god is affirmation what is the difference and the difference really comes down to the contents of each of those divine names and how much of the contents is in the intellect when that affirmation is made. So maybe my son has some idea of what wisdom is, but the older he gets, Lord willing, he's going to know a lot more what wisdom is. And then when he comes to Jude and there's the, the benediction at the end that says, God, al who alone is wise. Well, suddenly you got to figure out, wait, well, in what sense is God wise? In what sense is Socrates wise? And I think this is where the whole world of doing theology is very exciting to me because it turns the entire creation into, as you said, mm. full of potential for divine predication. Because in order to know or negate bodiness of God, I have to really zero in on what is a body? Um, is it the thing that exists in three dimensions as, I don't know, that's Aristotle or someone, but that, that's one divine, uh, that's one good definition of, a, of what it means to be a body. It exists in three dimensions. And I can think, okay, does God exist in three dimensions? Well, in a certain mode, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I don't want to say that that is who he is uh, entirely. So um, that, that to me was helpful when I thought, um, 
I say all these things about God. I read all these things about God in the Bible. But unless I go out into creature land and really mm. meditate on what it means to have materiality or to have goodness, what even is goodness? All those questions that now my son asks me that are, are actually really hard to answer. And I find a lot of the work of theology is just that, what do I mean by that predicate? And where can I go to fill my mind with the mental content so that what I'm saying, I'm saying with, with some level of understanding? Um, any, any other comments on that? Yeah, no, I, I, I call it predetermining the predicate for exactly that reason, that this is this is stuff you're doing before you get into the theology terrain. Mm. Um, forget the question whether God is or is not a body. We first have to predetermine what a body is, and that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of thought. Um, in a certain mode, everyone knows what a body is because we have bodies all around us. But we need to conceptualize, we need to, we need to refine the data of our senses uh, that's found in our brains, and we need to intellectualize that so that we can actually do stuff with it and, and learn about God, uh, whether we need to affirm or negate it, our questions theology is designed to handle. Uh, that's actually one point that's really helpful here is when you're in the process of predetermining the predicate, as I like to say very technically, you figure out what the predicate line is. You're not front loading it uh, or fudging it or placing it into a position slanted towards it being affirmed or slanted towards it being negated. No, we're not asking the question. Do we say it? Yes, of God. Or do we take it away? Yes, of God. We're just simply filling the line. And then we'll feel later in theology reasons that it must be negated or it can be affirmed. And that's really helpful. Um, our, our predicates, I like to say, are, are judgment neutral in the sense that we don't front load our predicates with the expectation that we're going to <laughs> affirm them or negate them of God. Um, we just let the data, so to speak, tell us what it tells us. We analyze the arguments, we go from there. And that's really, really helpful. Um, the other thing that's helpful is, although this process is much more difficult and takes a lot more time, it has the advantage of once you have done it, once you know it, um, it's very, very solid. You're no longer engaging in the meaning of words or various types of synonyms you're trying to figure out along those types of lines. No, you are touching reality. You are having truth. And it makes you very, very solid. Solid in a way, hopefully, that's humble and quiet and things like that, particularly because you now understand how difficult it is to become very solid. <laughs> At least been somewhat my experience. But um, solid nonetheless, uh, and that enables you to uh, pierce through sometimes the chaos of words and conventional signs and 
all those types of questions, which are important, um, and simply have truth in your mind, yeah. which in theology is what our actual goal is, rather than good, but nonetheless non-theological questions like how to conventionally speak uh, mm-hmm. about these truths. Again, good and worthy questions, even essential questions for us to handle. But theologians are rather ornery, We're very precise about we want uh, about what we want, and we only do what we want to do, namely have truth and apprehend the reasons or explanations of truths, and that's it. Um, we can talk about how to say it better later. So you just used <clears throat> used a phrase conventional signs, and mm. I was wondering, could you just explain for folks what is a conventional sign? A sign here in this context would simply be a spoken or a written word, which is said to be a sign because it signifies stuff in my mind insofar as reality has pressed itself upon my mind and produced thoughts, um, both acts of judgment and also acts of understanding, which we can perhaps cover another time. So we call spoken words or written words, things on the page, things coming from my mouth, signs for that reason. We call them conventional or habitual signs because they are merely custom-driven uh, or custom-dependent Um, We're thinking here of the fact that I could start speaking in a different language using different customs of sounds or different characters on a page. But nonetheless, through those very different conventional signs, be signifying the same thoughts and reality through those thoughts um, by way of those signs. In theology, we're always very attentive to Primarily, our thoughts, broadly speaking, again, judgments and acts of understanding. But we're also somewhat secondarily concerned with conventional signs. Um, Aristotle says um, theologians always need to speak as normal people speak, which is kind of funny because Aristotle definitely did not do so. (laughs) And theologians are often... uh, not only accused, but justly accused of, of not of not doing so. But we do want to speak in the native tongue with our words, although not allow the tail of the dog to wag the dog. Don't allow our conventional signs to control our thoughts, which often happens is very, very dangerous. Rather allow our thoughts to be true of things and then with self-possession, control our words to communicate our true thoughts and to give insight into realities. That's what conventional signs mean. Uh, and it's coming, again, it's a technical technical term. Again, I should take some of my own advice and speak as, speak as plainly people, uh, speak plainly as people do. Yeah, I think that uh, what you just said, if someone reflects upon this, we're actually getting at the explanation for how there can even be translation across languages and that 
truth mm. is not in the words themselves per se, but it is in the mind, the person speaking, mm. and you can use different conventional signs because we have a shared reality, a shared existence as creatures mm -hmm. so that what is a body for you, if you're Chinese, you, even mm -hmm. though I might not be able to speak Chinese, um, they can intend something and we can actually understand and communicate with one another. Even if our conventional signs, I have no idea what the conventional sign for body is in Chinese, but you know, Google translate could perhaps tell me. And in theology, uh, there's kind of this, um, what was the conventional theological sign for mm. certain predicates a thousand years ago using a Latin Bible or a Greek Bible? And so much of theology and misunderstanding amongst different factions um, have arisen because of some of the misunderstanding of what you are predicating when you say, uh, three substances or one substance mm -hmm. or some of the really technical uh, Trinitarian vocabulary, you're having to do that across language and culture barrier. And what we're saying by conventional sign is that the language and the culture and um, that kind of shared communal uh, um, mm -hmm. slang almost all goes together for how this is how we say amongst Protestants, you know, justification. So we all, we all have the uh, justification by faith is one of those Protestant bona fides. And yet you go to James two and clearly James two says man is justified by works because it's using justification in a different sense than when good Protestants say justification by faith. And so you can imagine uh, a Roman Catholic hearing that Protestants teach justification by faith, pointing to James 2 and saying, you guys are clearly terrible theologians. And some of it is uh, Protestants have been less than adequate in their explanation of the predicate justification. And then there's all sorts mm -hmm. of misunderstanding, I think on both sides, on, on an issue where I think there's a lot more agreement maybe this is controversial for some people um but a lot of it is okay just just think what is your predicate justification and when you are looking at this bible verse are you saying that is the content that is in this predicate is that um is that the connection point so um ryan i we started with talking about this uh difference between essence and attributes and divine names. So now that people have a little bit better idea of what it means to kind of use predicates or um, have a name that you predicate of God, now could you give us a little bit of a distinction between how that's different from doing divine attributes or uh, divine attribution? What is the difference there? Yeah. So again, there's, there's some overlap. Um, you know, any, any large system of thought often has traction and becomes a system of thought um, because it has a lot of good and real and true insights. Um, 
oftentimes I find people will hear the difference between attributes and predicates and be like, eh, they're very close. Yes, they are very close. But sometimes those very hyper precisions really make a difference over the long haul. So attributes, technically speaking, are, are things that we attribute. It's just another word for predicate of God. But oftentimes, uh, and also in the theological tradition, where divine attributes are spoken about since the early moderns, uh, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century or so, um, there are lack of technicality such that people think of a divine attribute as a thing or an item rather than a predicate which is either affirmed or negated. When you have a way of doing theology which has a line of items, attributes, things, God is spirit, God is infinite, and so on, considered as attributes, spirit, spirituality, infinity, and so on. Um, this is not really sufficient to communicate the fact, for example, that these are not technically speaking real things that God has, but actually predicates which God doesn't have, which aren't true of God to affirm, but rather are true to negate. So spirituality is something we don't say God is in predication talk. We rather say Corporeality is something that God is not. And we've re-signified that conventionally, talked about that with a conventional word, spirituality, um, but people will get confused. So talk of divine attributes often reifies or makes attributes to be things and also positivizes or makes all of these things automatically to be positive and it often absolutizes it makes all of these things to be absolute items um, that god has whereas if you look down under the hood we do all these predications we find lots of differences between predicates got positive predicates negative predicates You've got absolute and relative predicates and so on and so forth, which make real differences in terms of truth claims, what's true and what's not. Um, but also the meaning of theology, what we're actually saying takes on drastic different forms when you when you look at those technicals. Um, so, yes, this is one of those situations where real precision does pay off in the long run. And to start thinking in terms of predicates that we either affirm or negate of God, that's kind of the foundation line, rather in terms of attributes is, is very helpful. So I can imagine someone hearing this for the first, <clears throat> excuse me, for the first time, and it's still being a little bit fuzzy. And I think once we get into the division of divine names, the mm -hmm. kinds of divine names, it'll really start to drive this point home that might not be totally clear. So you, in a prior episode, we talked about the difference between God is a rock versus God is love. So mm -hmm. rock as a predicate, love as a predicate are different kinds of predicates. Could you speak to that? Let's kind of give people an example at the, at the end here for 
how um, those fit into this question of divine naming. Yeah, so that's a that's a, a, a real case in point. Um, those would be what we would call two different kinds of affirmative or positive names. Uh, positive names, broadly speaking, we divide uh, into into two. There's various divisions that we can talk about here, but at least initially, things that are properly speaking said of God, affirmed of God, and things that are only metaphorically speaking said or affirmed of God. So those would be two examples of categories. Another even more fundamental category than divisions of positive, different kinds of positive names would be the very division between positive or affirmative versus negative names itself. Such as God is not a body, which is a negative name, body is being negated of God, versus God is wise. One is what God is, one is merely what God is not. And there are lots of different rules and principles and implications when you start looking down the, down the technicals. Um, even the line of Westminster Confession that you quoted initially has different kinds of names that are all written down on the page. So God is spirit um, is actually paraphrasing, again, the negation, God is not a body. So that's a negative name. Similarly for infinite, God is infinite. You can kind of see it a little bit more clearly there. God is not finite. He's not finited from matter and form and things like that. And so on and so forth down the line. These amount to really significant differences on the whole in theology. Spirit doesn't assert anything about God. Obviously, it's a actual truth about God, but it doesn't mean anything positive about him. Whereas as you go down the line, what, what are the other ones here? Help me out. I'm, I'm, embar I'm embarrassing yeah, myself. We need Infinite, your three-year-old son. Uh, eternal. That's a hard one. <laughs> eternal. Eternal is, a, eternal is a very hard one. You always like ask about eternal. As soon as you start yeah, doing time like wise, theology, it's very hard. <laughs> uh, time is always bad. Wise, good, love. At the end of the day, what where this really hits home is our prioritization of positive names uh, takes center stage. The things that are important to know about God are that he's good, that he's loving, that he's caring, that he knows, things like this. And then the so-called negative names are subordinate or underserving of those positive statements. And so the interplay between different kinds of names uh, rests on those fundamental divisions like positive and negative. And then there are many more that I'm sure we'll cover. Yeah, this is where I think things get really exciting in theology is, uh, at least for me, is that distinction just between what a negative name does and what a positive name does, and then how those two things relate. I think it's hard to actually really do theology unless you have that understanding of divine predication one of the this, this might be a very silly analogy you can you can tell me if this is uh bad or not i'm sure it'll break down at some point but i like to think of divine predication like 
building a rocket to send into the sun. And in this analogy, God is the sun. So if you send anything into the sun, it's going to, you know, be obliterated or uh, I'm told, but Mm -hmm. you're building a rocket. And in order to build a rocket, you're going to have to use all the stuff that's here on earth. So this is, I'm going out into creature land. I'm gathering materials to build my rocket. That's me loading my predicate. The rocket is my predicate. I've gathered it from creatures. And then I'm going to hit launch. And that's when I'm doing my, my is um, or, or is not statement is I'm launching it. I'm going to launch this predicate up. And then as it goes up, um, the, the negative names are kind of like stripping away uh, mm-hmm. stuff as it goes, you know, into the atmosphere or whatever. And then whatever's left after all the negations have been, you know, done uh, is, is the truth that makes it into the sun. And then even once it gets into the sun, it kind of, you know, uh, explodes or mm-hmm. so that's my very imperfect analogy for kind of how I like to think about predication is I'm like catapulting or I'm, I'm taking something down here and I'm shooting it up into God. This is the usurping, uh, I, similar. Uh, this is my imaginative version of your usurping, um, okay. uh, co- concept. So, uh, any reflections or uh, critiques of my my rocket analogy? No, no. I I think I you know I've got an illustrations that have appealed to me over the years too. And what I always find is it's really an illustration of my actual experience of doing theology, doing divine names again and again and again. So you you talking about using the illustration of uh, the, the atmosphere stripping things away, you, Aaron, experience that mentally, conceptually, as you, as you do the work of theology and you pull stuff out of your predicate that isn't true of God. And, you know, oftentimes our predicates need to be purged with fire. So fire is a very common image here uh, for, for obvious reasons. But yeah, these are what it feels like to do theology. To recognize that creatures are somewhat similar to God, and therefore they're the, the rocket part that actually hits the sun, but they they snuff out, they don't make a dent in the sun because they're only similar to God. And at the end of the day, they're very, very small, itty-bitty creatures, and God is very, very big. So we can make comparisons, but we can't ever reach our arms around uh, who or what God is. And hmm. yeah. A lot of different illustrations here that will uh, resonate with people as they actually do theology and experience some of these kinds of moves for themselves. I do appreciate that you underlined there really, really is positivity that does remain after all of our negations, which we do preserve. It's an issue that a lot of people worry about early on in theology and frankly for quite a while in even when they're studying theology technically, because there are so many negations and also the certain kind of negations that we do actually do, like there's a lot. Sometimes people start to get a little worried and wonder if there's any positive content at the bottom. Um, I mean, just assert there is. And the 
result of all these negations really just intensifies the positivity and the positive content of the things that you know to be true of God. The basic grandma truths like God is love and God is good. After all of the massive negations we go through, basically amount to saying God is really, really love. God is really, really good. And we just are doing a lot of technical stuff to support that intensification. So positivity mm. really remains is very important. It doesn't go away, even though the positivity, because it's creaturely weights and measure, doesn't manage to adequately represent how loving God is or what God's actual love uh, in reality is. Um, God is too big for our creaturely minds and our creaturely predicates and will always be. Yeah. Well, why don't uh, we end by me reading again this uh, line from Thomas, our intellect, which from creatures is led by the hand into knowledge of God must consider God insofar as it usurps from creatures. That's all for this episode. Until next time, keep on reading.